The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the place where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. Once again, this week is no exception. Today, we're going to talk about that iconic, famous, incredible actor, Lee Marvin, today on Guys Guys Radio. And you ask yourself, why are we talking about Lee Marvin? Well, I'll tell you why. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a guest, Dwayne Epstein, and he wrote the book Killing Generals, which is about the making of the iconic movie, The Dirty Dozen. And Dwayne has written another book. Uh, he actually re- wrote this one earlier called Point Blank about Lee Marvin and won a lot of awards for it. And it's been a perennial bestseller. And as I was doing my research on the Dirty Dozen conversation with Dwayne, I picked up uh, a copy of Point Blank and I read it and I was fascinated and I thought it was very germane to what we do here on Guys Guys Radio. I mean, here's a guy, Lee Marvin, he passed away in 1990, he's a throwback, he's one of these old school, you know, man's man type of guy, Uh, violent, alcoholic, he had, uh, as a kid, ADHD. As an adult, PTSD after his uh, time in war in the Pacific Theater, um, alcohol issues, a, uh, a, an abusive father, and uh, there's a lot of uh, toxic masculinity that goes into how he lived his life. Yet, everyone who knew him in Hollywood to a person seems to sing his praises and say he was a real guy, he was authentic, he was honest, and he had a gentle side to him, he was artistic. He wasn't. A, he was a trained actor, but not trained in the sense of uh, in method. He went by his instinct and experience and kind of gut reactions. And if you've seen any of his incredible uh, series of movies, you'll realize that he is just puts himself into each and every role in a very honest, forthright way. And I think he's just a really terrific actor. And his personal story is really fascinating. How he got into the business how he made some of the decisions, a bunch of roles that he took that weren't, you know, that weren't star-making roles, but whatever role he picked up, he added something to it. And it's, it's just like it is in life. No matter what your job is, you put your special sauce into it and you make it as good as it can possibly be. You don't wait to like that big opportunity or like you got to the top and now you're going to put your work in. You put your work in each and every step to the way. It's like, you know, I go back to New York City, I see the guys spinning pizzas there and they put so much into it and it's like okay they're just making pizza but no that you can feel when they're doing it the right way you can feel the love you can and and the pizza tastes really good whereas some places where they just here's your slice it's a dollar there's no love there and you can tell the difference and it's like that in life and it's so important that you put your heart into whatever you do do the very best job that you can so Today's special guest is uh, Dwayne Epstein. He's a return guest to Guys Guys Radio. We had him on talking about Killing Generals, the book about the making of the iconic World War II movie, uh, The Dirty Dozen. I actually watched the film with my son. My son's 10. I'm introducing him to some more adult-type films now. And, you know, had some hard, mo- harsh moments in it. 
for sure. There's a lot of violence in it. But compared to what they do today, where they have all these quick cuts and flashing stuff in your face and a lot of glorification of uh, violence, this was kind of old school, just a story. Shoot them up. Yes, there's violence. It depicted some incidents that um, were uh, portrayed to take place during World War II. It is classic storytelling. It's about 12 guys who were dumped behind, uh, misfits dumped behind enemy lines who need to uh, kind of save themselves from their uh, sentences, which are all 30 years hard labor or execution. And a fantastic movie, and uh, my son had some fun with it. And, you know, we show him different types of movies. Uh, Last night I watched uh, Kindergarten Cop with him, so it's not just I show him war movies or something, but I want to give him a little bit of a, a spectrum. The point is, Lee Marvin is really a terrific actor, and he's a real throwback type of a guy to a time where you don't have guys like that this nowadays for a lot of different reasons. And so it's refreshing to kind of see how things were for better and for worse and say, okay, this is where we came from. Where are we right now? So it's not condoning the toxic masculinity, if you will. But he's a terrific actor and he's an artist. And he won, believe it or not, he won his Oscar best uh, actor for Cat Baloo, where it was a musical. So he's just a really multi-talented guy, and it's nice to see people kind of pick them up by their bootstraps and, and make it, and it can be done right here in the USA. So Guys Guys Radio, my special guest, Dwayne Epstein, we're going to talk about Lee Marvin today. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, the interview portion of our show, and today we're going to talk about Lee Marvin, the incredible, iconic actor from the 60s, 70s, 80s. I don't know if he was around uh, too much in the 90s and uh, just an amazing talent and an amazing individual. And we're going to talk about him. And he's he's not he's not just a guy's guy. He's a real man's man in the old school sense and in a new school sense, too, because he's very interesting. We're going to get into that. My, get, we're going to get into all of that. My special guest, excuse me, is. A return guest to Guys Guys Radio, Dwayne Epstein. He's a terrific author. We had him on talking about the Killing Generals book a little while ago about the making of the Dirty Dozen. And as I did my research on Dwayne, I realized that he wrote this this incredible book, uh, award-winning book called Point Blank about Lee Marvin. So I want to have him back on the show. I read the book and uh, it was well worth my time. So first of all, welcome back to Guys Guys Radio, Dwayne Epstein. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, well I got to tell you, as I was just mentioning before we get, went on air, you did an amazing job with this book. This is chock full of information. I mean, Lee Marvin died. How long ago did he die, Dwayne? He died in 87. Okay, 87. So it, it's been a while. Yet you have managed to, without ever meeting him, really get to the essence of who this guy was. And he was pretty darn incredible. He seems like he got along. All the other actors respected him. He liked all the other actors, with the exception of, I think, Ronald Reagan. He was in such a variety, uh, even though when he started out, he was in all of these tough guy, bad guy roles, and he'd get killed in the movies. He, he over time, he rose to the top and became one of the biggest, if not the biggest star in the world for a period of time when uh, Dirty Dozen came out right after he won the 
Academy Award for Cat Ballou, and he beat out a whole bunch of really top uh, acting talents. So let, let's start at the beginning, because obviously I'm very passionate and excited about this because it was such a great book, and I learned so much, and I have so many Lee Marvin movies that I want to go back and see, and I have so many Lee Marvin movies that I want to see. So let's start with your inspiration. Why Lee Marvin, Dwayne? Uh, it's a very good question. It actually <clears throat> it doesn't. It, it it started without having anything to do with Lee Marvin. Um, I have what I call my holy trinity of favorite actors, and they include Steve McQueen, James Cagney, and Burt Lancaster. Uh, I'm a big retro pop culture fan. Now there was a gentleman who had written a book about Steve McQueen named Marshall Terrell, and I liked it. And I've read. At the time, I had read almost anything ever written about Steve McQueen, and he seemed to get it right, unlike a lot of other authors. Now, also, there were a couple of mistakes in his book, and I wanted to talk to him about it, and consequently, I was able to. And we met for dinner, and we were talking, and as we were talking, we were naturally talking about movies. And in the conversation, Marshall said to me, you should have written your own book. You know movie history. And I said, yeah, I'd like to write my own book. The only problem is you wrote it. I'd love to write a book on Steve McQueen. So that became the catalyst for an interesting conversation. He said, you know, you can still write a book um, about, you know, a, 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 an actor from the past. Um, who do you like and, and who hasn't been written about? Because there's a marketing factor involved in this. Mm. And we were going through different people. And I realized nobody had written a book on Lee Marvin. And I was like, he's not part of what I call my holy trinity, but he he was always a favorite nonetheless. And so I started doing some initial research based on that conversation. And the more I discovered about him, the more fascinated I became. And there were certain aspects of his life and career that just were so incredible to me in that even though he was a product of his generation, uh, uh, he was born in the 20s, which meant he lived through the Depression, World War II, and... and uh, you know, the Cold War and all that kind of stuff. And that was an aspect to his life, no doubt about it, because he lived through it. But he still, I discovered, was not typical of that generation. He was very liberal. He um, he was um, for gay rights. He loved rock and roll and, and classic R&B. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing you'd say about his contemporaries, like John Wayne or, you know, the like. And that interested me. And also, too, as all interesting people are, especially if they're creative entities, I discovered a fascinating through line in the films he made. And I, and I put it to other film historians that I knew and were close to, a gentleman named Bill Crone, who had written several great books, mostly on Hitchcock. And I asked him, doing the research, I said, do you know if there's anybody else who ever portrayed violence on film and villainy as realistically as Lee Marvin. And he said, let me get back to you. And a couple of days later, he said, no, only, <laughs> Lee, only Lee Marvin, which was interesting. So consequently, that set me on the path of a theme, as well as trying to find out where did that come from? And that was equally fascinating because there are specific reasons for that. Um, it's not obviously would be his time in World War II. He was a Marine in the Pacific and he was wounded. That's a fact because he did have post-traumatic stress disorder. But also, too, a big factor was his childhood, which um, I discovered by interviewing his older brother. He had an older brother, Robert Marvin. He passed away in 99, but luckily 
I got to meet up with him. And it was not an easy thing to do because he was very uh, much, and what's the word I'm looking for? He was idiosyncratic. Uh, he agreed to be interviewed over the phone. I found him by my cousin who worked for the New York City School Board, and I knew Robert Marvin had been a teacher. So I asked her, can you find him for me? And she said, well, if he was ever a teacher in New York, I can find him. And she goes, I found, she got back to me and said, there's a gentleman named Robert Marvin who lives in Bearsville, New York. Here's his phone number. Give it a try. I called the number. And what I loved was I wasn't on the phone with him two seconds and I knew it was Lee Marvin's brother because of the way he answered the phone. I heard Lee Marvin's voice in a heartbeat. I was like, hello, is this Robert Marvin, brother of Lee Marvin? And he went, yeah, who are you? And I was like, oh, that's him. That's definitely him. <laughs> and, and, and it took several phone calls and I did go to Woodstock to meet with him. And it was interesting because when I got there, even though he agreed to the interview, when I got there, he kind of changed his mind. And he was like, what's in it for me? So that was kind of scary because I flew all the way out from California on a waiter's salary, which is what I was doing at the time. But eventually I talked him into it. And the end result was one of the single best sources for information about Lee Marvin's life and work. And he also eventually opened up his family archives to me. I was able to get um, the letters Lee Marvin wrote to his family during the war, which was a major exclusive. Um, I got letters his parents wrote to each other while they were courting. Um, all kinds of great stuff. And most of the photos that you saw in the book, okay, they were from Robert. Okay. All right. Well, let's start, let's start at the at the beginning because there's so much to cover. And uh, I think you just painted a nice picture of kind of what, what some of the big themes of Marvin's life. But let's let's start at the beginning then. So tell us a little bit about his childhood from what I took out of the book is that he got thrown out of like 16 schools. I mean, he, he just kept getting placed in different schools and he would he had an issue with authority and he would it was very combative personality and he just kind of wanted to be left alone and do his thing. He liked to fish. Uh, he liked sports. Um, and he really didn't sense, have a sense of uh, who he was, I don't think, as a kid. And so he fought all the time and he got kicked out of all these different schools. Tell us more. What about his childhood? What about his re relationship with his dad and also with his big brother? Well, I'll tell you, um, everything that you just mentioned is, of course, in the book. I, and, I, and I'd like to make mention of one thing that wasn't in the book that I found out after the fact. I got this story from an actor named Bruce Davison, a guy who played Willard in, in that movie. Um, I, I became friends with him on Facebook. After the book came out, he told me this story that I found amazing in that he said he had met Lee Marvin when they were both making different movies in Munich, and they started chatting. And Bruce Davison happened to tell Lee Marvin that my father was a drunk, but he was a happy drunk. And Lee Marvin said, not my father. And Bruce Davison said, what do you mean? And he proceeded to tell Bruce the story that I think said volumes. And if I'd have known it, I'd have put it in the book. After getting kicked out of so many schools when he was a young boy, I mean, I think adolescent, 13, 14 years old, he got in a physical fight with his father. And his father pushed him down the stairs and almost knocked out his front teeth. And he, he was bleeding, and he was holding his hand over his mouth, and Lee Marvin yelled up at his father, what is it going to take to get you to love me? And his father looked down at him and he said, die. Oh, now, now, that's the kind of thing that's going to definitely affect your life. And 
that's just one example. There were several examples I did put in the book that despite the way his father treated him and very and he's often very cold and, and distant, Lee Marvin otherwise idolized his father. He thought he was, you know, um, some friend had written about Lee having known him as a child saying Lee thought his father hung the moon out at the night, which I think is an interesting quote. Um, while at the same time, he had a lot of pent up dislike for his mother. Yeah, that's what, what was that? What, what was that all about? He definitely didn't like his mother. Well, the thing is, his mother came from the old South. She was a Virginian and probably best described in popular terms as a steel magnolia. And she put a lot of emphasis on proper social mores. And Lee hated that. He found it to be hypocritical. And um, he always fought against that kind of thing throughout his life. But he saw it in his mother. Um, he would never necessarily get into arguments with her, but he would uh, like say things behind her back and, and, and hated that he had to always say or do the right thing in her presence. Um, that kind of thing. How, tell us about how he kind of, after all of this uh, turmoil, he found himself in some type of uh, summer stocky type uh, uh, repertory companies up in the Catskills, I believe, and kind of fell into uh, acting at, at initially there and then came back to it after he came back from the war. Oh, well, actually, um, he didn't really do any acting before the war. He, when he was in high school, he was in a couple of plays. But that's right, about that's it. what I meant. Yeah. 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 Well, after the war, his parents had settled in Woodstock, um, where the famous concert took place. And long before that, it had always been a kind of a haven for bohemians and artists. Right. And when he came, well, first he was in he was in Chicago for a couple of years, and then his parents had gone to Woodstock, which they, when he was growing up, they used to have a summer home there. Um, so they were comfortable there. Now, when he got to Woodstock, he got his father used his influence. He got him a job as a plumber's assistant, um, which is a great story aside because. As a, as a plumber's assistant, I met the son of the guy who ran the plumber shop that Lee worked at. And he told me some hysterical stories about Lee. Now, that aside, while he was there, Woodstock, being the home of many Bohemians, had even even though it was kind of like a you know a cottage, small village kind of thing, there were three legitimate theaters in that in that town: um, the Maverick Theater, the um, Woodstock Theater, and the third one escapes me. Anyway. While he was working as a, this is the story Lee liked to tell, that while he was working as a plumber's assistant, he was called to go unplug the toilet. And while he was there, he saw this beautiful, red-haired, blondish actress and decided, hey, I got to get into this, right? Well, that's not really what happened. What happened was he was at a party one night at a friend's house, and um, the leading man of the play they were doing <clears throat> at the time, the play was called Roadside by Lynn Riggs and everybody was getting drunk and having a good time. And one of the guys who ran the theater was a gentleman named EJ Ballantyne. And um, Ballantyne was at his wits end because the leading, one of the leading actors had uh, taken sick. And because of the character he was supposed to play, EJ Ballantyne shouted from across the room, Hey Lee, we need a Texas loudmouth. You think you can do that? And Lee was like, well, sure, EJ, or oh, Teddy, they used to call him. Sure, Teddy. Well, the next morning, hungover, Lee had to learn the line and perform it that night. And Ballantyne's um, daughter-in-law, Betty Ballantyne, whom I interviewed, told me 
she stayed up with Lee all day and night until the show. And she said, there's no way he could have learned it. It was just way too much, but he gave it a shot. And what happened was, as far as Lee was concerned, once he hit the stage, that was it. It was magic for him. He had found what he wanted to do with life. Also, those who had witnessed it had told me that his entrance was amazing because back east, there's sometimes you know, dry thunderstorms, right? And the minute he hit the stage, there was a thundercrack and a lightning strike. Now, you couldn't have planned that better if you tried, you know? So that was it. He was sold from that moment on. So what happened from that point? By the way, my special guest and return guest, Dwayne Epstein, the author of the amazing book, Point Blank, all about Lee Marvin, our subject today. Um, so what happened after this initial four-way into the foray into the theater? How did he get some traction? I know the war came up. He went to war. He came back. How did that work out? Okay. After the war is when he and was working as a plumber is when he decided to become an actor. Okay. Right. And what he did was he, en he enrolled in the American theater wing, which was an interesting thing as a result of the GI Bill that had been passed, which was to train soldiers to become actors. And it wasn't even so much a matter of, you know, how to become the character, how to uh, um, get inside the soul of what you're playing. It was really a kind of a training school. It was about how to get work as an actor. And they had some fascinating teachers and um, Lee enrolled. Now, when he went to enroll, his father thought he was going to enroll uh, to become a carpet layer. <laughs> but that's not what he did. He enrolled to become an actor. And the GI Bill paid for his tuition and he studied. And unlike a lot of actors, it seems, in the years since, he what they did what they used to call trod the boards. Anything he can do to get an acting gig, he did. He did summer stock. He made um, army training films. He did radio shows, uh, um, live television in New York. And he got a lot of work and he got a lot of experience under this belt. He hated doing summer stock in um, a repertory theater in different parts of the country. <laughs> you know, he, was, he said in an, in an interview one time, you're in the midst of doing some great emotional scene and some whistle blows, and all these guys who were going fishing walked out of the stage with their cleats and, and shoes and what have you, and you know, and all they care about is getting. You know, that was his take on it. And eventually, he did make it to Broadway in the play uh, Billy Bud. He played um, a minor part, but and from there he got a part auditioning as an extra in a Gary Cooper service comedy. And they sent him, um, he did some scenes in, in Norfolk, Virginia, and then he went to L.A. And when he was in L.A., he met an agent, a guy named Meyer Miskin. And what's interesting is when he met this gentleman, the moment they met, until the day Lee Marvin died, he was his agent, which mm -hmm. is really rare, very rare. Now, um, so tell us a little bit about his travels back and forth and how the acting world was different then. He got the, obviously, at, at the beginning... He wanted to get onto Broadway and he got in uh, Billy Budd and I think he played a soldier and he pretty much had a couple of lines is like, wow, you know, that's all there is. So he went back and forth, California, came back to New York and uh, and his agent kind of helped him make the right decisions. Tell, oh, big talk time. To, talk to us about well, that. Well, this is interesting in that when he was at the Maverick Theater and he did a, uh, like a few seasons there, one of the other actors that were at the, at the Maverick Theater was an actress named James Doohan whom you might remember better as Scotty on Star right, Trek. Right. And I interviewed Duhan, and he told me 
he had met after they were done at the Maverick, and he was, and, and 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 Marvin was looking for more professional work. He met Juhan in a bar, and this was when he was doing Billy Budd, and he had just done some uh, scenes for the Cooper comedy, which was called "You're in the Navy Now." And he asked James Doohan, he said, you know, my agent, this is a gentleman who wants to be my agent, who told me I can get better work in Hollywood than I could ever get, wait to get work on Broadway. James Doohan said, take your agent's advice. You've gotten as far as you can go on Broadway, Lee. Go to Hollywood. You'll get better work there. This guy is right. And so that helped Lee decide. So he came back to Hollywood and sure as hell, Meyer Michigan got him work on a regular basis. Not a lot of big parts right away. That took a while. But Meyer Mishkin, whom I interviewed, was a very, very interesting man. Um, Friends and um, um, associates called him Little Mish, because I think he stood about 5'2", to uh, Lee Marvin's 6'3". But um, he was was very dynamic and very forceful in terms of how to get things done. And he got Lee work. Amazing. It seems like one of his breakthrough roles, he played a lot of kind of bad guys when he was willing to take on any role. As long as it was different, he had something new he could work on. He got killed a lot. And because of his looks, he wasn't he wasn't uh, cast as a leading man so much as kind of the antagonist. Um, but he got into the wild one with Brando and he did a great job. Some thought he was a little too old for that role, but he worked out terrifically. And Brando and he got along. Yeah, they did. Unlike un, un, unlike much that had been written about the filming of the movie at the time, but they did get along. In fact, Marlon Brando um, babysat for Lee Marvin's son when he was like a year or two. I, I interviewed Christopher Marvin. He told me, I don't really remember that at all because I was too young, but he did say, I just like the idea that Brando changed my diapers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, the thing about The Wild One, and uh, as well as his other roles at that time period, I discovered a letter he had written um, his brother at the time where he tells Robert, at the time he hadn't gotten the part yet, he was up for it, and he told Robert, I'm going to be playing, I, I, I think I really got a good shot at playing this character, and I think I can do it like nobody else can because I understand these men, these guys, these punks, and I hope I really do get the part. And the thing is, when it came to playing characters like that, when he was at the American Theater Wing and also when he was at Maverick, he had said, about the characters he was asked to play, at least when he started out as an actor, he under he under he said, "I understand these men. I understand these brutal, violent men. I know how they are, and I know why they are." And he did that a lot in his career. But he actually came to a point where he said, "I'm sick and tired. There's so there's only so many ways you can say take it in the gut, Harry. You know." Mm-hmm. And he got tired of that after a while. And he was able to find a niche in the way he played these characters. And the thing you mentioned a moment ago about many film critics thought he was too old for the part, okay? That's because, with all due respect, most of the film critics in that time period had no idea what they were talking about. The movie was based on an actual incident that happened in Hollister in the late 40s after World War II. And most of the bikers who attacked that small town were, mar- were actually even older than what Marvin was at the time. It was a famous photo in Life magazine at the time of this looking rather middle-aged, overweight biker hanging on his uh, motorcycle with a beer in his hand. And Marvin knew that. Marvin understood those guys. And by the way, I'm going to jump ahead briefly and we can go back to it, but it was his performance in The Wild One that got him the role in Kapaloo that he won the Oscar for. Hmm. 
That, let's talk about some of the other uh, some of the other roles he he worked with some really big stars. Um, Kane Mutiny, he was in that, right? Yep. What yep. was his with Bogart? And I think Bogart was somebody he really uh, looked up to. Oh, big time! What was his role there? He played, he played a character named Horrible, and he did comedy scenes like with uh, um, Claude Akins. Who no, he was Meatball, and Claude Akins was Horrible. Anyway, the uh, the guy he was a standout in the sense that you you know if you give him something small to do in a small role. Lee Marvin always knew how to make the most of it, like any really inventive actor can do. And when I interviewed the gentleman who was the son of the owner of the plumbing company he had worked for in Woodstock, Bill Heckeroth, Heckeroth told me that he, his favorite Lee Marvin performance was in Kane Mutiny. He said, because there's a line Marvin has when he's walking through the deck and he's carrying some pipe and he shouts out, lady with a baby, lady with a baby coming through. <laughs> Bill Heckeroth said, ever since I heard that, I've been using it ever since. <laughs> um, Mar you know, the story goes, more Hollywood Ballyhoo was that Lee Marvin served as a uh, technical advisor for the King Mutant because it was military experience. That's just not true. It wasn't true at all. Mainly because the movie is about the Navy. Bogart was a Navy veteran. If they needed advice from anybody, they could have gone from the lead to the lead actor. But in any event. Now, he was also in a lot of Westerns, uh, Lee Marvin. Uh, Bad Day at Black Rock was a big one, right? Yep, big time. When you're talking about the people he worked with before he was a known entity. Please, but he, please, yeah. He worked with Montgomery Cliff, Spencer Tracy, John Wayne, the aforementioned Marlon Brando, um, all the biggest stars of the, oh, Gary Cooper, when he started his career. Another quick story about the wild one that I loved was that when the film came out, like I mentioned a moment ago about how film critics really didn't understand or know what they the film was about um the people the film was about the bikers especially the older ones they were so enamored with lee marvin's performance they hung out outside the theater where the movie premiered and they followed him home and at first he was understandably uh not happy about that and his wife betty told me that they followed him home and they hung out on the front lawn for a couple of days and lee lee kept telling betty don't make eye contact with them. They're, just, <laughs> they're way too scary. And what wound up happening was while they were hanging out on the front lawn for a couple of days, she made them all, you know, made them dinner, made them breakfast. They, they loved Lee Marvin that much. Matter of fact, the, uh, the shirt that Lee Marvin wore in that movie, those you know, solid black and white stripes. Right. The guy who started the Hell's Angel, a gentleman named Sonny Barger, bought that shirt in auction. That's how much he loved Lee Marvin. I mean, Unbelievable. Yeah, I, and, and, and he stole movies from the likes. So he, he didn't steal a movie from Spencer Tracy. Tracy was too good. But the scenes that, Mar that Lee Marvin had, the guy who wrote the screenplay for uh, that day at Black Rock, a guy named Millard Kaufman, he said, Marvin was brilliant in doing little things that you're not supposed to notice, but you do anyway. Watch the way he twirled the gun when he was just messing around. Or best yet, throughout the movie, he keeps trying to tuck the back of his shirt in, his shirt tail, and he never does. He makes the effort and it keeps falling out. He did it a certain way that was hysterical. Um, and, you know, stole movies from anything he did with John Wayne. He made three movies with it. He was always the center of attention when he was on screen. And they got along well, even though they were very different men. They got along. Um, and he, uh, he was enamored and impressed. Even though he didn't like method actors, he thought they were phony. 
um, the two best actors he worked with, two of the best actors he worked with were proponents of the method system, uh, Marlon Brando and Montgomery Cliff. And once again, he stole the movie. It wasn't a very good movie. A, a ripoff of John McClellan, Tree County. And he was terrific. How would you, uh, Dwayne, how would you describe Lee Marvin's, apparently he was a real student of acting and he would watch a lot of film and he could pick apart other people's performance, even though he wasn't trained in the same way as uh, some thespians, if you will, and he wasn't method. How would you describe his uh, instinctual, intuitive type of acting? That's a, you just described it in that word. See, it's, you know, he was a trained actor. However, it wasn't the kind of training That's that the I likes mean. of uh, Brando or Clift had had. And Betty Marvin told me, his first wife told me, that they'd watch a movie and... In like 10 minutes' time, whoever the lead was, uh, Marvin would lean over to Betty and go, watch, in two seconds he's going to do this. And the actor would do exactly what Marvin said. And or sometimes or she said he would go, you know what? He know, This guy knows his lines. He knows what he's doing. But he acts like he's got a broomstick stuck up his ass. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew what was good acting what was bad acting. And he loved to point out when it was phony. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's disrespecting acting in and of itself. It's just that when it came time to do it, he just did it. He didn't, you know, oh, I have to, you know, like Hamlet and, and, you know, figure this out or that out. Just by knowing the character, he would understand what the character was. And oftentimes when not considering a role, but when he was uh, uh, preparing for a role, he would just go off with the script, usually down by the beach or someplace, read the script and just think. And he would write notes in the script. I've seen some of the scripts he had, and I saw some of the notes he would write. And that would be it. And once the, uh, once, uh, the director said action, he was on the money every time. He once said famously, how is it that he went? So somebody asked him, how do you get the parts that a lot, of, a lot of other actors would like to get because of the way you play them? And Lee Marvin said, it's not that other actors would want to play it the way I play it. It's just that once I get the part, I play better than anybody else. And when they don't know what to do with a role, they'll say, let's give him to Marvin. He'll work something out with this. And that's exactly how he got the roles he did. And that's a, that's a, great, that's a great trait to have. Um, the Liberty Balance, The Killers, um, Cat Ballou, Donovan's Reef, Attack, Seven Men From Now. Com- uh, tell us about some of these incredible films that uh, we forget sometimes that Lee Marvin was a big part of. That's one of the reasons, one of the myriad of reasons I wrote the book, was I wanted to turn, like I was, turn people on to the films he had made that may have been forgotten. And I discovered some films before um, I got seriously into the research. I was pretty familiar with his uh, career before that, but I had never seen Seven Men From Now. And when I saw it, I was blown away. He's amazing. And in doing so, in the time in which I was working on the book, I was lucky enough to interview a lot of the participants of his films that were still alive. Um, I interviewed the writer-director of uh, Seven Men From Now, Bud Bettiger, who is now a bit of a cult director. Um, He told me marvelous stories about what Marvin would do. Also, um, the the director of Capaloo, um, Elliot Silverstein, I interviewed him. Um, I, I wasn't able to interview Don Siegel, who directed The Killers, but um, I did interview several of the cast members, and they told me great stories. But specifically, Clue Gulliger, who was the partner to Lee Marvin in uh, The Killers. And he told me that Lee set up this game with Gulliger. If you've ever seen The Killers, 
you'll see that, you know, real quick, basic premise. Clue Gulliver and Lee Marvin are two hired assassins hired to kill John Kessel They do it. And then Lee Marvin's character gets curious. Why does this guy not fight or, or try to run or anything? And then that's what the movie is about. There's a lot of flashback with Marvin and Gulliver trying to find out why uh, John Cassavetes didn't want to be killed. Now, in the scenes they have together, when they lean on some of the people they talk to, Gulliver is constantly doing little actor's tricks. He's, he's playing with a toy car. He's, he's taking swigs from a, from a flask. He's doing all this. And Clue Gulliver told Marvin in advance he was going to be doing that. And, and Marvin told him, do what, you do, do what you want to do, kid. They're going to be watching me. And that's exactly what happens when you watch the movie. It's the way Marvin plays the part. And because of that, during the making of the movie, Gulliger told me that early on, Lee Marvin said to Gulliger, all these other actors can't act their way out of a paper bag. I'm going to get them, and they're not even going to know it. And he used several examples. He, um, he got, uh, what's his face, um, Claude Akins. He got Norman Fell. He, but his favorite target was Ronald Reagan. And during the making of the movie, every time he would get somebody, he would stand behind the actor and hold up a finger and go, that's one. And he would do it with the next actor, that's two. And his favorite was Reagan. What he did with Reagan was this big scene that they had towards the end of the movie. Marvin, every single time they rehearsed it, from the rehearsal to the dress rehearsal, to the blocking, to the actual shooting of the scene, more than one take. He did it different every single time, but still believably. And Reagan didn't change a single thing every single time he did it. And so at the end of it, and Don Siegel said, cut, that's a take. Marvin went, that's five. Mm-hmm. And there was only, you know, Reagan left. And he goes, what that was, was the that? kind of stuff that he would do. Now, was this to kind of pump himself up for his best performance? Or Absolutely. He wasn't Absolutely. doing it at, to make necessarily make the other actors look bad, but it no, seemed like he, he had no. to had do this type of stuff to get his best performance out of himself. Also, also, yes, absolutely. But also, it, it was an attempt to get the actors to do better jobs. And more importantly, it was, mm-hmm. it was a way to make the scene better. That's what counted to him. Make the scene as best as possible. I could give you countless examples of that, but okay. you know we had limited time. Real quick, but, another fast example, because we had mentioned it a moment ago, and why I love Seven Men From Now so much. He came to the set the very first day with a red woman's garter on his sleeve, and Bud Bediger said, what the hell is that? And Marvel goes, I don't know, I saw it in wardrobe, and I thought it would say something about the character. <laughs> and, and Bediger went, I love that he did that. It's never explained. He just wears it, and it keeps the audience guessing. So that's yeah, that amazing. kind of thing. Well, let's talk about. Let's. We want to get some career highlights. So he won the Oscar for Cat Baloo. He played, I believe, two roles in that. Yes, he did. And uh, it's kind of a kind of a comedy western type of thing. That's and, exactly right. And he beat some really big names for the Oscar. Rod Steiger. Um, who 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 is he, he up against? Richard Burton. Lawrence Olivier. Like, wow. uh, uh, right. Um, Oscar Werner, who was nominated for the film, for co-starring in the film with Lee Marvin, Ship okay. of Fools. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty tough year. And so, Marvin, so. Marvin didn't think he stood a chance. Well, how did he get that role and why did he want that role? Just to well, expand his palette? Well, to go back to what we were talking about a moment ago, there were several actors who were uh, considered. Um, 
first and foremost was Burt Lancaster, mainly because his uh, um, uh, producing partner, Harold Heck, was producing the film. And he wanted Burt Lancaster to play uh, Kid Celine, and he wanted Tony Curtis to play um, the part that Michael Callan eventually played. It fell through. And at the time, they, they, they were approaching um, Jose Farrar and Kirk Douglas, and Jack Palance had let it be known he really wanted to play the part. Unfortunately, Palance, Palance was never offered the role. But that aside, while, while the producers and the executives and what have you were debating who could play the role, Elliot Silverstein, the director, was watching TV one night, and he saw the wild one. And when he saw the way Lee Marvin fell off his motorcycle in a couple of scenes in the movie, he goes, that's Kid Shalene. If he could fall off his horse like that, he can do it. And more importantly, even though Kirk Douglas was being seriously considered, Elliot Silverstein told me, I would have a real problem working with Kirk Douglas, who was a big star at the time, because there would be things I would, ask, I would be asking him to do I don't think he'd be willing to do because he was such a big star. Mm-hmm. I don't think Marvin would have a problem with that at all. And that's exactly what happened. Marvin didn't want to do it at first, but his agent and his wife read the script and begged him to do it. And as he often said when introducing his wife to people, he would say, this is my best friend and my toughest critic. Whatever Betty suggested, he usually went with. And once he read the script, he goes, this is the first laugh out loud script I've read in a long time. So he did it. And what's interesting is his, well, he played two characters, like you mentioned a moment ago. He played Kid Selene, the broken down drunken gunfighter, and he played Kid Selene's brother, Tim Strawn, who had his nose bitten off in a fight, so he wears a metal nose. Now, consequently, Marvin decided to play it as if he was Liberty Valance when he played Tim Strawn. And he's also Kid Selene in many of the movies he already had made in the past, so it was kind of a a parody of his screen persona, which I think may be one of the biggest reasons he won the Oscar. Because everybody knew in the, <coughs> excuse me, everybody in the industry knew Lee Marvin, knew the parts he had played, and now here he is making fun of himself. Hollywood establishment loved it. Now, uh, he had, uh, we don't have to drill deep into this, but he had a lot of personal problems that were the result of his drinking with his marriage. He kind of messed that up, and then he had a uh, somebody else he was involved with who really drove him crazy over time, had a big lawsuit with, and uh, and the drinking was on and off, and eventually, and he smoked a lot too, smoked a lot of cigarettes, and eventually he died at age 63? 63. Yeah, yeah. so which is pretty young for a big, strong guy like him. Um, in today's market, are there any, and it, you know, acting goes in waves where there's this type of actor, there's the, you know, the anti-hero, and then there's the likable more, uh, you know, like with James Bond, you had the different types of James Bond kind of um, being portrayed to match up what's going on in the culture at the time. Do you see any actors in, from your research, Dwayne, that remind you of like, this is like a Lee Marvin type of guy? I was thinking like, well, Mickey works kind of like a Lee Marvin, but he's in no way Lee Marvin, you know, <laughs> like Lee Marvin is way bigger than life. Well, I'd like to mention one, one thing. You're right about um, his smoking and drinking was uh, the cause of his early demise. However, the real cause of his early demise resulted in his drinking and smoking, which was his PTSD, mm-hmm. his post-traumatic stress disorder. And I, there was no doubt about the fact that he had it. And anybody that was really intimate with him that I got to know told me he had all the symptoms of PTSD, screaming nightmares, a... a uh, um, and 
both aversion and and you know, being drawn to acts of violence. Um, if somebody slammed the door real hard, he would jump five feet in the air, that kind of thing. Um, and he drank a lot, way too much. And he was drawn to violent situations. I had heard stories about even before he was famous as an actor, he would purposely go into a bar where there was like four or five people and start a fight. And and the person who told me this was Betty Ballantyne, whom he knew very well in Woodstock. And she said, I asked him, Lee, what's with all the scars on your face? And he would say, oh, I fell down the stairs. And she asked him like two or three different occasions. And finally she went, look, Lee, I know you're no klutz. You're one of the most balanced men I've ever met. Why are you, ha- why are you getting all these scars on your face? And he broke down and told her. He said, I look for a fight. He says, I won't go into a bar if there's one or two people. But if it's four or five, then I know nobody's going to get really hurt. The reason is I was trained to kill. I can't just turn that off like a switch. And that explains a lot about the man. Um, also, it explains a lot of the troubles he had in his life. It spilled over into real life. He couldn't just put it on screen. So um, who would you say in today's market, and is there a market for a Lee Marvin type of actor? Well, you know. Because he's a real throwback. I, I mean, the world oh, is yeah. a different place. I mean, well, he, that's, that's very true. And I've been asked that question several times. And I got I always think of, you know, there are several actors who have um, an aspect of Lee Marvin's persona in them. But I, mo- I always think of that great line Errol Flynn had in the movie The Adventures of Don Juan. Ever seen it? Um, I may have. Okay, it's a great movie. And at the end of the movie, when he says he's going to swear off, you know, uh, liaisons with women, mm-hmm. and he sees a beautiful woman go by, and he's about to go chase her. And his partner, Alan Hale Jr., says, I mean, Alan Hale Sr. says to him, I thought you weren't going to do this anymore. And Errol Flynn has one of my favorite lines ever. He says, you know, there's a little Don Juan in every man. And mm-hmm. since I am Don Juan, there must be more of him in me. <laughs> I Isn't love that, that great? That's well, awesome. that's how I think of some of the actors who are slightly reminiscent of Lee Marvin. The yeah. late Powers Booth, mm-hmm. uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Josh Brolin. There's all a little something there. But not enough to be the real Lee Marvin. Got it. You know? Okay. Oh, well, the guy that was on that TV show, Bosch, Titus Welliver, mm-hmm. he's a great um, um, proponent of that kind of persona. Got it. Okay. Great interview. Great discussion. Great book. Lee Marvin, Point Blank, Dwayne Epstein. You just did a terrific job. Once again, here's the book for those who can see on our YouTube channel. Uh, you just did a great job. Uh, what's next for you? Thank you very much. By the way, um, believe it or not, even though the book came out 10 years ago, it's still very much available mm-hmm. in paperback. It's what my publisher calls an evergreen, that it ain't yep. going to go away anytime soon. So based on what you. we've been talking about, it's on Amazon, um, and it's also available on the publisher's website, shaftnerpress.com. So by all means, please read it. it like I said, it's still selling, and Great it's still job. in print. Um, in, ter- in terms of what's next, I can't really say because I'm in pro- I'm, I'm I'm, I'm in the pot, process of researching a project that is going to be in the hands of a publisher soon, and we haven't heard my agent and I haven't heard back, and I don't want to jinx it. Okay. All right. Well, great job. Good to see you again, Dwayne. And uh, right, get that book done and come on back to Guys Guys Radio. Sounds good. I love it. Thank you, Robert. You got it. It's Guys Guy Radio. 
Okay, fascinating conversation with the always passionate and interesting Dwayne Epstein. He's a fun guy, and he's a terrific writer. And I have to say, once again, that the book, Point Blank, about uh, Lee Marvin, a biography, it's super well-researched and well-written. I really enjoyed reading it and learned so much about this iconic American actor. He's very different than so many actors out there. And, and to a man and woman, that people really respected him and his art and his talent. And uh, he hit, you know, warts and all. He was a... He was a flawed individual for sure, but he had a lot of talent, and his performances are very believable. Anytime you watch a film with Lee Marvin in it, he is right in your face on the screen. Whether you like him or you don't like him, he's honest, he's authentic, and he's real. So I think we learned that uh, those three attributes, characteristics, can really help you in today's world where there's so much... Uh, you know, kind of shifting around and people are really don't show who they are or they're concerned about that. And it's understandable at times, but sometimes it's best to just be who you are and just put it right out there and be direct and not hurt people, but just show them how you feel, be authentic, be honest, be real and be available. And it makes for a, it creates a more emotional connection with your friends, family, people out there, hopefully for my audience out there, for you folks, that we, we do it here to be real on Guys Guys Radio. We bring you lots of, different, lots of different types of guests, and we do it in an effort to just pick out different areas and different individuals and different modalities and different things that we can learn about and talk about together and share. And then you go about your way and you determine like what you want to fold into your day-to-day uh, lifestyle, if you will, but at least we're learning things together. I've interviewed over 750 people and I've learned a lot. And hopefully if you've been along with me, we're part of the ride or good part of the ride that you're learning a lot of stuff too. And, and a lot of the things can fit in with how you live your life uh, to, to, for your best, for your best success. And that's why we're here on Guys Guys Radio. It's all about just giving you information that can help you out and entertain you. And so today's show is about a really iconic, very, very individual actor, Lee Marvin. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA Radio here in Southern California at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 106.5 FM, 10.50 AM. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time on KCAA. They also do streaming. They have a... You can download, you can listen live, you can stream. So there's all types of ways to pick up the show on KCAA. The podcast uh, drops every Thursday worldwide. We're on all of the top platforms. So wherever you consume podcasts, you can find Guys Guys Radio. We're downloaded in over 100 countries, and we chart frequently all around the world, which is great because I really love the fact that our show is being listened to in different areas of the world. It's not just an American thing. It's a global thing where we're doing our work and getting we're reaching people in a way to help them live their best lives um also we are on uh youtube and rumble every thursday uh, kind of later in the day we get posted on youtube and rumble so you can watch the interviews if you want on those two platforms and uh we're also on uk health radio which is the world's largest talk health radio station radio station in the world it's digital we're on four times every weekend. It's a great, uh, it's a great platform for our brand and the 
the UK Health Radio is doing great work and it's growing and growing and growing. And uh, they now have a podcast version. And uh, so we'll just get more and more listeners out there. And it's really fantastic. You can also catch me on my website, robertmanny, M-A-N-N-I.com. I've got over 300 blog posts about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. And one of the blog posts I've been writing about actually mirrors the work I've been doing for UK Health Radio's Health Triangle magazine. I'm writing a series there called Aging is a Choice. And each month I, I carve out and identify an area of aging um, where we can kind of make the right choices so we can live our best lives. And I've been taking those uh, posts, if you will, and also posting them on our website. So those are starting to go up there. And you can also download three free chapters of my novel, which is the source material for everything. Guys, guy, it's called The Guys, Guys, Guide to Love. It's a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue advertising. It's a rom-com. It's been called the male successor to Sex in the City. It's really about two guys in New York City uh, competing for love, sex, power, and money. It's about friendship and redemption and sex, and it's fast, and it's frothy, and it's fun, and it's got strong female characters and flawed male characters, yet it all works out in a way that I think you'll really enjoy and the re readers and critics seem to really like it. You can download three free chapters on the website and then you can order the book if you enjoy it on Amazon or wherever you get your books, physical copy or digital copy, whatever. I thank you for your support. If you enjoy the guests and content I bring you each and every week to Guys Guys Radio, please support us by subscribing on our platforms, whether it be YouTube or Rumble or Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch the show. Thank you for your support. All I ask is that you rate, review, subscribe, follow, whatever, to show that you're there with us and we can keep growing together. So we'll be back next week. We've got a lot of great guests coming up over the summer. And until then, have a great week. And like I always say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>